0: My name is Elizabeth Edwards. I'm a singer songwriter from the San Francisco Bay Area, and I have the privilege and the honor of traveling the country and sometimes other countries. And I get to talk about recovery and sing about recovery. And the purpose of this podcast is to celebrate the many talented and beautiful people who contribute their voice to recovery. So welcome to Giving Voice to Recovery. And I am joined by Chantel Jovan. Jovan, Jovan, okay. we've, we've done a lot of back and forth on email and stuff. So if I did pronounce your name incorrectly, please correct me now.
1: <laughs> it's fine. It's French. And so it's Chantal Jovan. No problem. Here we
0: go. Okay. See, I knew I had that wrong. <laughs> I said it, it very, very, very close. It was very <laughs> American the way I did it, right? <laughs> well, and where are you from? Where are you from, Chantal? I'm originally from Canada, Ottawa. Okay. Capital. Awesome. And so you came to the United States, at what point? Well, I came through
1: the United States via many countries. I practiced law for many years. And I had the great pleasure of uh, being in Japan and Mexico and Cambodia and Russia. And my last stop before coming to the United States was Austria. I was um, working as General Counsel of Western Union and I was in Vienna and then I was moved to their headquarters in
0: in Denver, Colorado. Oh, awesome. Okay. Wow. I'm I'm still learning. I I did a little bit of homework and I still didn't know all of that. So um, the reason I invited you to this discussion is you have written a beautiful book called Love Without Martinis. And um, so I just wanted to to start on your journey around um, this book. Can you share just a little bit about what it was that brought you um, and your family members or your family members to recovery to begin with what was that pivot point for you
1: well as we were just mentioning I was living in Denver uh, and this I met my husband through a Western Union he was the former CEO of Western Union mm-hmm. and uh, we became romantically involved and decided that we would move to the east coast where we would be closer to our family in Canada. He's also Canadian. And when we moved to, uh, to Philadelphia, it was our first experience living together. And as life would have it, there were a lot of challenges that came our way. Uh, his mother uh, was quite ill and we were by her bedside. All of this to say that when we started living together in Philadelphia, he was not the man I recognized. He wasn't the man that I had um, met and gone cycling and motorcycling with in Denver, but I didn't know what was going on. And I was fortunate enough not to have um, had to confront substance use disorder in my life. Mm -hmm. And so I didn't recognize any of the signs. All I knew is that uh, he was isolating He no longer wanted to do the things he wanted to do. And we began really clashing and arguing at a time when the world was opening up to us. Mm -hmm. It wasn't until a morning, it was 6.30, we're getting ready to go cycling and uh, we would juice and I picked up the wrong glass by mistake and it was full of vodka and I just like spit it out. And that was the moment I realized that something was going on. Mm -hmm. I had never seen him drunk. I'd never seen him out of place. He was CEO, he was a leader. He knew how to present himself. So there was a lot of denial, Mm -hmm. but that was the moment where I went from unknowing to knowing. Mm -hmm. And so at first I just thought, he was going through grieving for the loss of his mother, transition into retirement. And I just thought he would he would stop. But he didn't. And I thought somehow it was my fault. I wasn't being understanding or supportive. So I sought um, a, the help of a relationship counselor. And it wasn't very long before... She said to, to, um, now my husband, then we were just partners. She said to Bill, you need to see an addiction expert. Mm -hmm. And so he went to see an addiction expert who fortunately convinced him he needed to go to treatment. So there was that period before that I didn't know what was going on, Elizabeth. I just knew that something was really wrong. Mm -hmm. And that, we were so used to being in charge of our lives and controlling our destiny, and all of a sudden, couldn't.
0: That must have been a shock. Um, how long were you with each other before that period uh, with the vodka in the morning, and you had that, oh, there's something really going on here? How long of a period of attachment did you guys have during, how long was that?
1: Well, we, we met through our works. So many years, uh, we met in two 2001. Mm -hmm. Uh, Bill was, at the time, opening up the Paris office for Western Union, and really at the top of his uh, career, expanding a a team globally. I was based in Florida, and and we just met. Mm -hmm. It was many years later, uh, when I was moved to Denver that we um, began to see each other outside of work. Um, by then he had left Western Union mm. and we both had a great love for two wheels, motorcycling and cycling. Uh, so I would say that our, our friendship bloomed into romance, I, probably a year.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And then when we moved to Philadelphia, Uh, we had only been here a month when his mother became ill. And then we were with her through the summer into the fall. So before Bill went into treatment, it was not quite two years.
0: So did you attribute at first the drinking to, you realized he was drinking secretively. It sounds like what the aha was like, whoa, something. I didn't know he was doing this. Therefore. doing it secretively which is pretty common
1: um
0: and so when you started realizing that did you think did you look at yourself at all did you think oh what did you know what can i do how can i fix this that kind of thinking or did you go straight to we need professional help i mean i think that it we run the gamut on this. Some people totally go, oh, it's my fault I caused this or it's this or it's, or oh, it's not that bad. You go the other way, you go into denial or some people take personal responsibility for somebody else's addiction. Um, where did you fall into that? You, you're an well, at, first,
1: at first I really thought it was, um, he was just over drinking to deal with his grief, all the changes in his life. And I really didn't understand that he was no longer able to manage his drinking. Mm. I would say by September,
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, when I had that moment of drinking the juice and realizing, wow, this is not normal to be having you know, vodka at
0: 6am. Um, Even with grief. <laughs> Even with grief. <laughs> <Even> That's <with grief. laughs> a red light, yeah. right. <laughs>
1: And then the, the team leader I am, uh, the first thing is, okay, let's rally the troops. So I was, let's go cycling, let's travel. And I was trying to manage him, which it took me a while to realize was a normal codependent um, attribute. Okay. And so I didn't, no, I didn't realize it at first. I went through the, oh, we have this now that we know that this
0: is the problem he just has to stop drinking. Yeah. And I, and and I'm very clever and very uh, capable and let's get going. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Exactly. Put a plan together. Yeah. And (laughs) here's the schedule and let's go to the meetings and do all this stuff. When did you realize you didn't have the control over this?
1: It was a process. It wasn't an aha moment. Of course, I started monitoring the bottles and the Liquor cabinet. Um, of course, I started sniffing his coffee, but Bill was very um, functioning with his alcohol, so I couldn't really detect when he had been drinking a lot or he hadn't. But certainly, our interaction, the dynamic in our interaction, became very conflictual, very argumentative, um, and I think we were both losing grasp of the vision of our relationship we wanted to be involved I wanted to return to work uh, because I had also moved from Denver I was taking a pause he also thought he would be returning to work at the time Um, but none of that was happening he was isolating and definitely I went through all of those emotions of feeling like I caused this I why can't I control it if he loves me enough he wouldn't he would stop oh, all the very standard typical um turmoil and chaos of addiction but that was all on the inside on the outside no one really knew what was happening we presented very well
0: mm-hmm.
1: but i did start attending the fellowship of al-anon mm-hmm. and i began to understand that this. Is a substance use disorder, and it wasn't a question of his will or his lack of love for me, but that
0: he had a disorder that required
1: treatment.
0: Mm-hmm. That's a big moment when we when we realize it's this is it. I've gone through the, very similar with a, a person I love very much. It it's like on some level, I don't know if you can relate to this. Do a little mind reading here, but for me it was like there's a part of me that if I'm still in control of this if I don't give that up in my mind somehow I I I called it delusions of control and then when the day I really realized I have no control over this person and what they do and that's the surrender and it sounds like you had that moment as well that changes everything it did for me. Cause then it's sad, it's hard, it's hard to let go of that. But at the same time, that is for so many of us a pivot point when we let go of the responsibility of that and we stand back. Did you find yourself kind of, I I say for me, I let go when I couldn't hold on anymore for you. It sounds like you were a little bit more of a process, and, and came to it I think it's different for everybody what brought you to the point of wanting to write a book about recovery as a couple and tell me about your book and your project and why you felt so inspired and compelled to bring this these many beautiful stories um, which I love the fact that you've incorporated uh, tell us about your book I, I love the stories of the different people bringing different, aspects of how this shows up in people's lives but tell me about your story of bringing your book to life well it was a calling
1: i have to say we were fortunate that bill went to treatment and i went to the family education program offered by care treatment centers which is where he went and i began to understand what had happened to our relationship what I didn't understand was how we would deal with each other day to day, because he went to treatment. He chose fellowship of AA, had sponsors, therapy. I also, for the first time in my life, um, had private counseling. Mm -hmm. And so I was beginning to understand the enmeshment and the challenges to the relationship. Mm -hmm. And there was my recovery, his recovery, but there was also an us, the relationship. And it was really hard to find voices of couples who had walked before us Mm -hmm. that we could see. Well, first of all, derive hope, because as you know, recovery is a long process, and it's not linear. And there are back and forth. And you have moments where you have insights into yourself and your life. And then it becomes hazy again. And they are over life doesn't stop because you're in recovery. I was diagnosed with ovarian cancer, had to receive treatment for that. And what I didn't know is how did other couples walk that walk? How did they face life's challenges when they weren't in the fellowships with their sponsors, et cetera? How did they have a breakfast conversation? Mm -hmm. How did they make decisions? And that is really what inspired me to write the book when Bill and I were very fortunate and have a lot of gratitude for the support we received in our recovery. I wanted to be able to share those voices and those experiences of other couples mm-hmm. who had created healthy, fun relationships in recovery to support other couples.
0: Mm-hmm. And, and those early days of recovery, um, uh, what, I, what I love about how you, how you outline this is there's some, there's some crazy terrain in the early days because of the lack of, I mean, like you said, you were working on yourself and your husband was working on himself and he's changed. Recovery is about change. Okay. We're changing. And what I have seen over the years, and, and I see it also in the stories in your books, in your book, that those changes can feel very threatening at times because how do I respond? I've always responded this way when you were that way, but now you're not that way how do i how do i what do i do with this and i feel like the crazy one half the time that kind of thing so how you know i love there was um there is a system that you talk about i guess that's for lack of a better word why don't you tell us a little bit about the discovery the ascent approach and that's what it's named tell us a little bit about that and um and, and and just kind of a brief overview of what people could learn from reading your book not just the emotional support of, of knowing that first of all there yes there is hope i am a person in long term recovery and i am married to a person in long term recovery and i'm right. married to him for 30 uh, 30 plus years i think i said the other day we've been married for 33 years he goes, we've been married for 32 years <laughs> I don't know, but it was but i've been together with him for 36 years so Um, I do know what that's like. We did trial and error, and we found unhealthy examples in our community, and we found healthy examples. I can say that as a person in long-term recovery, married to one in long-term recovery, in some ways there's an advantage because I know what the inside of his jar looks like. Okay, like you can't read the label from the inside of the jar. I know what the inside of that jar looks like because I've been there. So I know what the thinking can be, but I also, um, there's challenges when two people are in recovery. I think in some ways for the person who the recovery isn't about substance use, it's about somebody else's substance use. In some ways, I have those relationships as well with some family members. I think those are more difficult. That's why I celebrate you for writing this book because I think it helps a lot of people. It will help a lot of people. So tell me a little bit about the process that that is presented in your book and how that came about and what that's about. Absolutely. So my process
1: of writing the book was very much a a journey. I started with the, the vision of sharing stories. I wanted couples who would talk about both sides of their experience in one relationship. And so I interviewed each partner individually and then crafted their story. And then of course there was the process of them reviewing it and tweaking it. But before I did that, um, it was my passion about recovery and couples and wanting to take the stigma away and say, we are a couple in recovery. Bill is in recovery from alcohol addiction and I am in recovery from being affected by the substance use disorder. So I did a lot of research to inform how it interview, like you're doing, you're interviewing me, you read my book, you did some research. So I did some research um, and I met with some clinicians And I had them inform how I would ask the questions and how I would write the narrative. And although I'm an attorney, I am very visual. So I have this great big wall in my studio where I write, and I had written the highlights of each couple's stories. And then I asked uh, Doug Tiemann, who's the CEO of the Care and Treatment Center, if he would write the foreword to the book, which I'm very grateful he agreed to do, and he shared his views of couples in a recovery. And so I had that on my wall. And then I wanted an introduction by an expert in the field. And so I approached Jeremy Frank, who has been a clinician in private practice for over 25 years, did his PhD in addiction, understands the challenges. So I had all of this on my wall. And I started seeing just it was like red flashing lights. There was this, uh, these habits that the people who had been in long-term recovery uh, and successful practiced without knowing it, but it supported their recovery. Mm -hmm. And as I looked at what informed Jeremy Frank's research as a clinician, I saw again the same threads, and then Doug's work.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So we, cr- I looked at it and saw those threads, and I saw these are practices. I'm not a clinician, but I have been in recovery, and these are habits that support a couple in a
0: recovery.
1: Mm-hmm. And so it's is- called the Ascent Approach.
0: Okay. And, what are, and these habits, I, I love, I'm fascinated by this concept of the habits. I, I have my personal practice and my husband has his personal practice and people in my life that are in recovery have their practice. We talk about that. And yet on some level, it does become almost, it's just the way I do my life, but it is what is the, found, it's built into the foundation of my recovery. So I think that that is really fascinating the fact that you were able to see those patterns and help put that um, into place with um, where you could see that the patterns and the and the cross-contextualization of that is really interesting because you could see how this pattern supports the partner it sounds like that's kind of what I got from it. So it a little it bit about
1: that. and so um, to make it easy
0: to remember
1: because we have so much information all the time. Uh Uh, We created the acronym, which is called ASCENT. Mm -hmm. And it stands, the A stands for assess your readiness to change. As you were saying, when we grow in recovery, we have to change. And in a relationship, a healthy relationship, we have space to change and to explore what we want to do
0: with our lives. And we support each other in those changes instead of feeling threatened by those changes. Right. That's what I've noticed. And that's so important for a couple who is new to recovery together, because if that's not communicated, oftentimes one person can feel left behind. Or you're getting better and you're leaving me behind. And they can subconsciously maybe work to undermine the whole situation. When in reality, we just need to communicate to bring people on. So I love that. I love that one. That's great.
1: <laughs> well, to me, it's a bit the analogy of hiking. As I said, we're very outdoor people. And when we go hiking, we both have our own style. And on a particular day, one is feels more energetic. And so sometimes, you know, my husband will hike ahead of me and I have to catch up. And sometimes we go down a hill together. It seems like we just have this nice stride and then we hit a hill and I'm a bit more aggressive. So I march ahead. And so we're not always at the same. You can't and you shouldn't develop and grow at the same rate. So part of assessing your readiness to change is communicating that. And so that if your partner really wants to focus, let's say, on your intimacy and you're not ready, you know, when I um, was receiving treatment for my ovarian cancer, there were moments that I, I needed a little more space. I, I couldn't be as intimate as I wanted. I was struggling with my own body, my own um, experience. So the ability to say to Bill, I, I need a little space right now. Um, that didn't mean I didn't love him. It didn't mean he wasn't being supportive because he was very supportive. But I needed that, I needed to go at my own rate of healing. So assess your readiness to change is to have a conversation with your partner where you can say, I'm ready to deal with our intimacy, or I'm ready to. In the case of Larry and Sherry, who are in my story, they had um, some trust issues around their finances. You know, Larry wasn't ready to trust Sherry. And so that conversation is part of assessing the readiness to change. Mm-hmm. Then the S for structure your time. Well, in early recovery, it, everything is different mm-hmm. and you need to create a competing interest for the time you used to spend with, you know, drinking, or for someone like me, trying to control my husband. (laughs) And so structuring your time allows you to focus on other activities. But it's also a really, uh, it's a fundamental step in rebuilding trust because a structure to your time creates accountability. You know, I had to show up at a certain time here today for us to have this conversation. And you expected me to be here. And when I show up, I meet your expectation that builds trust between us. Mm -hmm. And so structuring your time in early recovery is a very important part of creating trust. In long-term recovery, as I'm happy to enjoy today, it's sometimes about creating time for myself because as you, we tend to get ourselves so busy structuring <laughs> my time allows me to say, okay, there's a bit of time here for, for me or for us. Then the other is um, the C for creating community. Mm-hmm. Very important. And obviously the essence of recovery is connection. And to connect, create that connection, well, you have to relate to people. And you, in early recovery, it's great if you can create new relationships, because you don't have all the baggage of active addiction. Mm -hmm. You can create a new you as you are in this moment. It's about this moment, not what you did in the past. And so you get to show up fresh.
0: I think that the communities around the 12-step groups, and I think all the recovery groups, but especially probably the 12-step methods, they are very good at creating a new community for people that are like-minded who are trying to do the same things. And my experience with that has been very inviting to all parties. um, Both, you know, if like a spouse is, you know, a lot of meetings are open meetings, the spouse can go. Um, and, you know, sometimes it's an all women's meeting or all men's meeting, that kind of thing. I know um, creating community is probably one of the most important things, especially in early recovery, but it's also very true throughout recovery. It really is a foundational piece. So, And that might not be, I mean, for a lot of people early in or at the end of a, a drinking situation, a, an addictive pattern that's been going on for a long time, a lot of people in their lives have left and it's very isolating. So coming into a new community almost it feels a little raw altogether, but I think that's such an important bridge. And and I would just like to say if anyone's listening to this, going through early recovery or pre-recovery, that we welcome you with open arms. And I and we we are looking for you. So Thank you for uh, for putting that in your formula because it's so so important, it really is. It it is.
1: Being connected to other people helps us um, understand ourselves better because they mirror back to us. But also we develop curiosity Mm -hmm. and often in the process of our active addiction or trying to support someone into recovery, our focus becomes so narrow that we lose that openness and that curiosity Mm -hmm. about who you are. And then I can bring that back into my relationship, into my romantic relationship and say, let me know you as you are today. Mm -hmm. And so we practice these skills with other people that is a less emotionally charged environment. Mm -hmm. And then we can bring back our, new way of listening, our communicating curiosity into our relationship. And that is part of what nourishes our relationship. And yes, there are so many communities. There are the fellowship, there are many pathways to recovery. There's smart recovery, she recovers. Mm-hmm. Um, for people out there who are um, facing addictive behaviors, key is just reach out. And exactly. you will find your tribe, you will find people who will welcome you.
0: And the modeling of, and and, and that's the thing, um, if the, sh- go where it fits you. If your intention is to find recovery, try out what all the different things that, that are presented to anybody who's looking for that. And you can just look online, it's everywhere. Recovery, just put in recovery from whatever you're want to recover from. And you will find a plethora of of resources, try them and see what fits. You'll hear the language that, that connects with you. The other, the other thing I love about what you're talking about, so important, is the modeling. I can learn from somebody in a really safe way. And really, um, uh, people, people in recovery tend to want to help other people in recovery. And so, especially in couples, you know, I can go to another woman saying, you know, oh, I don't, he's doing this. I don't understand that. Or you could say, well, you know what? Maybe just give that, some, give him some grace, give him some, some minutes and talk it over here so that when I come back to my partner, I can show up without all my, I can show up in a new way. I can show up in a more empowered way in my own relationship. So I learned, I I, I love the fact that you really, you really do touch very heavily on that. And I think that's such an important key concept. So anyway, I just want to say that.
1: In our community, oh, well, I'm glad you,
0: uh, you agree with
1: that sentiment because also our communities, um, some of our community will be in a recovery and will get recovery. And some of our community won't Mm -hmm. and, That's okay, too. Um, Mm -hmm. My best friend didn't have any experience with recovery. Mm -hmm. So she was still my best friend, and I still called her when I needed support. But when I really needed guidance, I needed to turn to people in recovery because they understood the specific challenges that I was facing. And so part of creating community is is having um, an array of people that can help us have fun too because sometimes recovery can feel so serious and we need to have people we can go and just have fun with in in go for a walk go hiking and go to a cooking class but just have a moment of just enjoying our life because that's what recovery is about is being able to enjoy life without having this overarching draw and pull, whether it's wanting to control the other person, what's he doing looking at my phone texting um, or trying to hide the drinking.
0: And so- It becomes very consuming. Yeah, it's become so consuming that we almost get so isolated that when we have this re-entry, the safest place in a lot of ways is to come into a recovery community. But from there, I can, I can interface with my songwriting community, my church community, my um, a women's community or uh, athletic community, whatever it is that is of your interest. It's easier to get back to the bigger world when you've been through substance use disorder with a person, it can be very um, all, all consuming. And when you come out the other side of it, it's almost kind of like you are don't even know who you are half the time. <laughs> like I've gone through this with a couple of different people. So yeah, it's um, the re-entry to community is a big piece. So I didn't mean to slow you down here, but you're on a roll there. Yeah, this, is, this is exactly the conversation
1: <laughs> you want to be
0: having. Yeah.
1: Because I'm hoping that as couples and people in recovery listen to both of us who are grateful members of being in long-term recovery, they can understand that what we're talking about is it it happens to everybody in the process of the recovery journey. And and whether you're in long-term recovery or early in your recovery, we all have to create our community. It may look slightly different, but we need
0: connection. And as we grow, our community may change and look different as it grows, too, and our confidence level and all of that. And so, yeah, so the C is community. Right.
1: And so we get to E, which is a really good springboard, which is engage in your life. Yeah. And that means what am I doing to grow? And what are we as a couple doing to grow? Yeah. And this is a theme that keeps Uh, coming into our conversation, that of growth and change. And when you engage in your life, it is part of you looking at yourself. I look at me and say, what engages me? What you are taking responsibility for yourself. And that is part of the recovery process. Because in active addiction, we lose our sense of self-responsibility. Mm -hmm. We tried to be, for me, I was trying to be responsible for Bill (laughs) and forgetting to be responsible for myself.
0: I call that having an out-of-body experience. The problem is I forget to come home. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, oh, I've been over in so-and-so land, you know. But, yeah, it is. It's about coming home to yourself. And the one thing I just love, um, I see so much of it in the stories in your book, and also in the, in the assessment of how you put this all together. It is so important to learn how to take that personal responsibility. And I'm the common denominator in every relationship I have. So right. And the power isn't in me trying to get somebody else to change. Because if I have to wait for them to change, I might be waiting a long, long time. But if I can change, what what part of this is mine and what can I do to make it better? That's and I can also
1: get change. discouraged. We have to to realize that part of recovery is also healing. And sometimes um, we have deep scars to heal. Yes. And we need our partners to engage in their lives to give us the space for us to heal. Um, But also we may need a little bit more time to to do our our healing. And so we're not responsible for them. But engaging in your your life also as a couple is important because we know how busy life is today. There are maybe the kids, the dog to walk, another Zoom. Um, hopefully, though soon it will be in person, but we can become so busy um, that we also forget to engage together as a couple in what we love. And so engaging in our lives is also how do we grow as a couple? And Bill and I, being executives, were very goal oriented, and so we would set new goals we love to cycle and we said let's do a century together which is a hundred mile bike ride you know (laughs) continuous uh, which was a great way to be outdoor healthy but challenge each other you know we're competitive so that was really good for us we also love to travel Uh, as you know I'm French speaking and so I love to go to France for the time we're there I get to speak in French Mm -hmm. I love that Mm -hmm. and it makes us grow because Bill has to rely on me. He doesn't speak French and that's not always comfortable for him to depend on someone else because he's very independent. And so that helps us to grow as a couple. So it doesn't matter what it is. It could be you love bowling and you have to deal with that competitive nature. Uh, it can be gardening and deciding how you're going to organize your your garden and who's going to be responsible for what task. But what's important is you're collaborating together.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: while you collaborate together, you create connection.
0: And, and also, I love the way you talk about having those common goals together, Having a creating a compelling future in which you both share a common goal, I think is a really powerful way to rebuild trust with somebody especially if you've been through a lot of periods of time where, you know, there was trust that was broken a lot. And that does happen. The behaviors that happen when we're um, in our active addiction are, um, they need, the amends need to be made, but the behavior, the new behavior needs to be demonstrated on a regular basis. And both sides of the, the relationship, whatever kind of relationship it is, have to be able to show up for that And it's hard to do that. That is a very emotionally vulnerable thing to do. And yet I see the miracle of that happen all the time. And I see the miracle of that happening in your stories. And I love that. Um, Tell me a little bit about um, your vision of um, who, who should get this book. Let me put it up here. Who should get your book and where can they find it and where can they find out more about you? absolutely and just to
1: to finish on that last thought you had um it's it it is also part of the last two letters of the ascent model which is nurture your spirituality and that doesn't mean you have to be religious some people are it's wonderful but to me spirituality is about inner peace Mm -hmm. and however as a couple and individually you nurture that inner peace it breaks down their reactivity. So when we have those bad days, you know, what we often say those bad hair days um, where we're rubbing off each other, our spirituality, our inner peace allows us to slow down, take a deep breath and not go back to the old patterns where we're just, you know, hitting against each other and entangling. Um, And that leads us to the last one, the tea, treasure your partnership. And that is... This is the fun part, they're all fun. But I love being able to compliment my husband and tell him what I love about him. You now we're a couple and there's lots of things that we spend time, you know, sort of tense about, but it's in our love, we fell in love with that person. There is something about them that is unique. And when we share that, when I say, I love you because you have a big heart, I'm validating him and he validates me and that we create meaning and a story together, Mm -hmm. which brings us to the story, right? Love without martinis, all of the story. So the book is coming out April 6th. It'll be available everywhere you love to buy books, you know, Barnes and Noble, your independent bookstore, of course, Amazon, it'll be on Kindle, you can also buy directly from me on my website, which is chantaljauvin.com.
0: So here's, here's how you spell it. You're going to learn how to say it correctly. <laughs> my uh, friend is abysmal. <laughs> yes. Yeah,
1: so it's, it, it, it's there. Google it. Love without martinis. Uh, but uh, April 6th, it'll be available. And share it yes the power of our stories our narrative is sharing it and i know part of our joint vision in recovery is taking the stigma away and we need to open up the conversation and feel free to talk about what is recovery what does it look like we have a lot of ideas of what addiction looks like what does a recovery look like?
0: One of my favorite subjects is, um, and the reason I do this podcast is to um, confront that stigma because, you know, we're both people in long-term recovery. A lot of people saw what, you know, they, there's tons of examples of active addiction, but when we get uh, into recovery, it's almost like we become invisible because we blend in so well, right? It's, there's nothing sticking out. And yet there's a lot of people who need to know that people can and do recover every day. And we go on to live amazing lives. And a lot of times, um, and I sense this with you, is that um, in some ways our lives after recover after recovery, and in our recovered path and journey become richer and deeper because we don't take things for granted. We go deeper. We know how to go deeper with ourselves and we know how to be more present with the people that we love. I'm a better person because I have recovered from a a very um, aggressive form of addiction that hit me really young in life. And I am super blessed that that happened because it made me a more compassionate person um, and I got to recover and live a, a life as a compassionate person. I don't know that that would have happened had I not had that challenge. How
1: it resonates,
0: what the whether it's
1: Nadia and Luke who've created a new vision of their family together. They're in their 30s and they're both in sobriety and recovery. Mm-hmm. Uh, whether it is David and Leslie, where he got hit in retirement. Um, when it should be sort of a great crowning part of his life. He gets to be a grandfather. And that. And so the that's the message I hear from all of these couples I interviewed and many more that aren't in the book is recovery has allowed them to grow their relationship and enjoy life and support each other to engage in life.
0: Yeah, in, in ways that might not have been available had that what we think of as this, you know, I always say my worst day turned out to be my best day. Right? Yeah. And that yeah. just, I really read that in your book and I read that in your stories. And I can't thank you enough for joining me and sharing your voice as a voice in recovery. I really appreciate it. So thank you for coming on. And I look forward to seeing this book all over the place as it comes out this spring.
1: Thank you, Elizabeth, I appreciate the conversation.